This week on Writers, Inc. Uh, there could be a group of people out there who want dinosaurs dressed up like John Wayne walking through, uh, you know, uh, uh, recreated Western sets. Uh, they might absolutely love that. And for those eight people, there you go. You've written a, a brilliant book for them. But just understand that it's going to be for eight people. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. Crazy week, man. How you doing? Man, I don't know. Like, you know, like we've had all this construction going on. And, and Zach, by the way, called me out about it on your <laughs> other podcast. <laughs> I, finally, I finally listened to that. Um, but like one by one over the past week, they've all kind of called in and said, well, so-and-so has got a fever or... I was standing next to this person in line or at the Home Depot or, or whatever, but like there, there's nobody here today. It's yeah. just me my wife and my daughter. And it, it, it's very weird. Like I put a tweet out there, you know, like I work from home. You know, I like saw I've that. Gone, that was good. I've, I've gone weeks. Yeah. I've gone like two, three <laughs> weeks without leaving my house other than going out for my run. And like the second somebody tells me I'm not supposed to go anywhere, it's like I'm looking out the window at my car. I'm thinking about like all these things I'd like to do. Um, I went to Home Depot the other day just because we've got um, you know, somebody putting baseboards in here and we've got a pantry and I wanted to put shiplap up in the pantry. And like he quoted us like a thousand bucks or something silly to do that. Um, so I figured, well, I'll go down to Home Depot and I'll, I'll pick the stuff up and I get there and I'm like one out of, you know, maybe three people actually shopping in the store. There's like 10 employees all standing around one register, um, you know, so obviously not paying any attention to the, you know, stay away from each other thing. Um, you know, like the one aisle with cleaning products is totally empty. Yep. Um, like everything is gone. And like, I was looking for latex gloves for painting. Like I wasn't even thinking about it from a virus standpoint. Oh, right. Um, but, but like those are gone too. Um, yeah. So, so that, that was weird. Um, and then just being like, I, I live on an Island. So it's like, we've got, I think about 700 houses or something out here. So it, it's fairly quiet to begin with. Um, but like I went out on my run yesterday and I saw maybe two people. You know, like there was, there was one guy hanging out on the beach, just kind of staring out at a lighthouse. And I saw another woman that I see almost every day walking her dog. And, you know, we, we purposely skirted each other by about <laughs> 20 feet and just waved a little bit. And, you know, that, that was about it. But there's just such a weird vibe. Like even walking through the Home Depot, like I almost felt like I didn't want to breathe. Yeah. You know, like I didn't, I didn't want to touch anything. I didn't, yeah, it's just, it's so strange. Um, and I'm just, I'm talking to so many friends, um, you know, like my literary agent, my foreign one, she works in New York. Um, and up until a couple of days ago, she was telling me she was taking the subway, you know, like, I just, I can't imagine being crammed in a little box, you know, like, like that. Yeah. Just, just like, well, I'm wearing my gloves. I'm like, I don't know that that matters. Yeah. Um, but you know, at the same time, I was just reading about Japan just a few seconds ago and, and in Japan, like the virus has more or less calmed down to, you know, like they expected it to be horrible there. Um, and, and they've got very little quarantine going on. You know, people are going about their normal days and it seems to be, you know, like passing them by, like it doesn't you know it's just not a fan of, of japanese or something it's yeah i don't it's so it, yeah it, it's hard to, to figure this out and i don't think anybody really could you know we're just gonna have to wait and see how we come out on the other side of it um 
you know, no, no telling what that's going to be like. I don't know about you. I'm really struggling with most of the creative work. Like my admin tasks, I'm kind of fine. Like the mindless stuff, the email, the dashboards, but like the hardcore creative stuff, I, I'm kind of struggling right now. How how are you managing um, to keep those distractions out of your like most creative work? It, it's tough, you know, because I, you know, I got my phone next to me and I see these little messages pop up on Twitter and, you know, like the president just did a, you know, this out of the white house and like a first instinct is to jump over and, and watch whatever is going on. Yeah. Um, you know, because that's obviously way easier than working, you know, so anytime <laughs> somebody throws like a carrot out there, I, I, I jump at it, but like I'm, I'm editing that, that book that I told you about that I, I've written, you know, the ending like four or five times, you know, like it's, it's pretty much done. Like I'm going through right now on a final pass and, you know, so it's not like real creative work. Um, but I, I, I get what you're saying. Like, you know, I, I, I'm trying to outline a little bit for my next book, just put some ideas out there. And, and Patterson and I have been going back and forth on an idea too. And you know, it's very difficult to, to get focused in that, you know, as soon as my brain starts to head in that direction, you know, there's something out of left field and, you know, or I see one of my neighbors outside that I haven't seen in a week and, you know, I'm just wondering how they're doing. And yeah, you know, it's just, it's, it's, I'm, I'm doing my best to try and force those thoughts out of my head and I'm usually pretty good at it, but it's, it's tough, you know, and then I see my daughter, you know, two years old, she doesn't have any idea what's going on. And all I want to do is protect her and make sure that none of this stuff comes anywhere near her. Um, you know, at the same time, she's getting as stir crazy as the rest of us. She wants to go to the park. She wants to go to the science center. She wants to do something. Um, you know, and, and there's no reasoning with a two-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah, you either right. do it or she screams at you. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I mean, hope, hopefully this thing goes, you know, goes, goes past us pretty quick. The one thing that's got me a little bit worried, honestly, is in Florida, there's a pretty decent number of cases and it's warm there. Yeah. You know, like one of the things I've been hearing is that when it warms up, this is going to kind of die out. You know, I, I heard the 67 degrees was kind of the magic number on a lot of reports that I read. Um, but you know, Florida is typically way warmer than 67 degrees and they've got a lot of people running around down there sick. Um, that being said, people down there are not necessarily being careful. Like, um, Patterson told me that there were people on his beach You know, he lives across the street from the beach. Like it was packed and you know, yeah. I saw some video for, for Clearwater beach, you know, like kids Spring are going to break on... crazy. Yeah. They're like, yeah. They, they don't care. They're like, yeah. yeah, I'm just going to go hang out on the beach and you know, like who knows what that's doing, you know? Yep. Yep. But, you know, I, and I, I tried, you know, to put myself in their place, you know, 30 years ago, I, I would have probably been that guy. Yeah, I, mean, like, I, know. I, I remember for spring break, like we, we threw a mattress in the back of a U-Haul truck and we, we drove to New Orleans once for Mardi Gras, you know, like you just, you don't think about stuff. Right. You know, so. Yeah. You're invincible at that age and you just don't yeah. even think about it. Yeah. Yeah. But well, you know, like I've got like one of my neighbors across the street, like she just got diagnosed with cancer and like, you know, I'm, like I'm, she's locked in her house right now I and mean, she's doing great. Um, but you know, at the same time, like those are the thoughts that are, are in my head, you know, like if I see a, an 18 year old kid running around on the beach, you know, doing, doing, you know, um, shots or whatever, you know, like with, with no, they're, they're just not thinking about those other people out there that, that could get sick because that they're, you know, they're, they're doing that, you know, like yeah. they could easily spread this thing. And that's, you know, it's unfortunate, but it's, it's, that's the world. Yeah, it is. So I thought I would bring us some good news today. I, okay. I, I intentionally didn't tell you about this. I wanted to congratulate you on air. Um, congratulations, partner. We are, uh, we ranked on Apple podcast, the number three spot for business podcasts in the country of Romania. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So people actually do listen to this thing, huh? Yeah. So um, they love us in Romania. Who knew? Uh, Romania is awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, it's funny because I, I was actually supposed to be in Romania like in, in the next week or so. Um, StokerCon is in the UK right. uh, this year. 
uh, and Dacre Stoker, he regularly does trips over to Romania and, and Whitby, um, you know, places from Bram Stoker's novel. Um, and I came really close to actually going with them on that trip. And I just touched base with them. They canceled the whole thing. They're, they're not yeah. going. But like we would have basically been in a plane, you know, I'm guessing like next week and, you know, heading off to the UK and then Romania after that and then StokerCon after that. And, um, yeah. And Romania is one of those places. It's weird because, you know, like the Dracula thing is, is huge there. But Vlad Dracul was a hero, you know, to them. Like, yeah, you know, Vlad, Vlad the Impaler, like, yeah, he did that. But he scared a lot of bad guys away by doing that. <laughs> um, you know, so like there's statues for him out there. And like he's, he's treated as a, you know, a historical hero in, in their eyes. Um, and, and at the same time, their government moves very slow. Like they, they could have honestly, there could be a huge tourist trade there because of the whole Dracula thing. Um, and they just, they don't seem to want to take part in that, um, which is good and bad. I mean, it, it's one of those countries where it's just, it's really untouched. It's a beautiful place. If anybody gets the opportunity to go there, they definitely should. Um, so shout out to the, the 12 people or whatever that are listening <laughs> to us over there. That's awesome. Thank you, Romanians. We appreciate yeah. the support. <laughs> <laughs> so who do we have uh, on the interview today? Today we have Jeffrey Deaver. Um, somebody I've known for a while. I, I mentioned this last week. He was one of the first guys out there to, to give me a blurb um, for my first book. Um, you know, if you ever get the chance to to speak to him, um, he, he's a wonderful teacher. I know he does a lot of a lot of classes and a lot of workshops and things like that. If you can sit in on any of those, um, he's a phenomenal guy to listen to. Um, stringent outliner, which I'm guessing he's going to probably talk about. Um, <laughs> you know, and there's obviously those those two different camps, but he is firmly planted in the the outlining camp. Um, but again, fascinating guy to listen to, great guy to talk to, and, and he will bend over backwards to help out a, an aspiring author, um, which I've, I've personally seen. And I, I, I thank him for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's going to be a great talk. So why don't, why don't we get into it and we'll come back on the other side and, uh, and, and talk about some of the takeaways. Okay. Here he is, Jeffrey Deaver. I'd love to hear about the new Colder Shaw book. I mean, uh, this this is new release. It's coming out uh, May twelfth. If I got my date correct, um, tell us a little bit about that's, it. That's correct. Well, um, some years ago, I did a uh, a series based on a fellow who uh, was a um, kind of a disgraced mo- independent movie director, and he lost his job, served some prison time, um, and then um, became a location scout and would travel around the country in his Winnebago looking for places to shoot movies now as as with all amateur private eyes you know he he ended up in a a crime situation you know independent of of his job it didn't really have anything to do with the movies he just happened to be at a location and sort of like a you know a tom cruise movie you never wanted to be this guy's friend you know his buddy his wingman because we know like in the third act he was going to get killed in big climactic scene so (laughs) anyway to make it make a long story short i loved the series but it was um I think uh, one of them was uh, nominated for an Edgar. But the problem was just what I described. It was kind of coincidental that he ended up uh, in a, just in the middle of a you know big crime crime scene going on. So, so that, that was a little strange. And also Hollywood is a, it's kind of a weird milieu. You know, we love, uh, what was that great book and movie? The Player. And, um, you know, Get Shorty. The, the Hollywood scene is fun, but it also is, you know, it's kind of jokey in a way. And so I, I found that you know, I like the I like the idea. The books did okay, you know, the, the nomination and so forth. They sold okay, but but that, that was years ago. I put the idea aside, and then that the now that the Lincoln Rhyme books have, have taken off and been quite popular with the movie The Bone Collector, of course, and just recently the TV show. I, I thought, you know, I, I love Lincoln Rhyme, but he is 
uh, obviously he's uh, he's static. He's you know, quadriplegic, of course, disabled, and he doesn't get around much. So I thought, well, for another series, I'd like to um, kind of reinvent my original character. Uh, so Coulter Shaw has a Winnebago, but he intentionally seeks out rewards for uh, missing persons and for uh, escaped uh, fugitives, uh, for suspects and so forth. So he can still travel around the country. Uh, he's a bit of a cowboy sort, and uh, he gets uh, involved in trouble in a you know a less contrived way. Yeah, less contrived. I like the way you put that. Uh, how how is this book a little different than the Never Game? Uh, well, it, it's a it's not a lot different. I have to tell you, the Never Game, of course, was about a series of murders, uh, kidnappings and murders in Silicon Valley, and a, a a father offered a reward for his missing daughter. And it turned out uh, she was missing. Don't want to give anything away to your listeners, but uh, she was missing because of a, a plot that had to do with a, a video game uh, based uh, killer. And uh, I'm hesitating because there's you know, I, my books are full of twists and surprises, and I don't want to give anything away if anybody out there hasn't hasn't read it. Right, no but, spoilers. But it's, 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 yeah, yeah, we we hate those spoilers. Um, but the um, uh, the book is a typical one of mine. You know, the Deaver prototype for a book uh, goes very quickly. It takes place over, I would guess, maybe uh, two days, two and a half to three days. Uh, lots of reversals, big surprise endings, plural. And that's that's my template for my, my book. So The Never Game was that set in Silicon Valley. Well, at the end of The Never Game, uh, again, I'm not going to give anything away, but your, your listeners will deduce that Coulter Shaw survived the end because <laughs> now, now we have the goodbye man. And I'm on record as saying I will never kill off my uh, one of my my heroes. That's I don't believe in that. That's not going to happen. But at the end of the Never Game, Shaw is presented with two possible um, springboards for a, another uh, adventure of his. And one is to track down two neo-Nazis who have uh, burned a cross in front of a church and shot a lay pastor and the janitor at the church, and they disappeared. And there's a reward offered, uh, offered for uh, their uh, their uh, for finding them, and it, it, the police can't. These, these two are very clever fellows. So um, uh, he, that's one possibility. But the other possibility is that during the course of the Never Game, Coulter Shaw discovered a secret of his father's, and his father was a, a, a an odd man. He was a brilliant, a brilliant professor. But he um, also was was uh, given to bouts of paranoia and probably a little schizophrenia as well. We're never quite sure. And this this secret may have resulted in his death and might result in the deaths of other people and possibly even uh, Coulter Shaw's family. So is he going to go in one direction, catch these neo-Nazis before they kill again? Or is he going to explore the secret, a 10-year-old secret of his father's death? And um, then we launch right in the next day, the goodbye man starts. And he is originally pursuing the uh, neo-Nazis, uh, but elements of his father's uh, story do uh, enter into the um, enter into the um, the goodbye man. And in fact, right at the moment, I'm writing the third book in the series, which uh, devotes itself entirely to his his father's mystery. So uh, again, spoiler: Coulter does survive the end of the uh, goodbye man. But I'll tell you what: I can't say that about every character in the book. <laughs> and um, can you? Uh, is there um, some basis for the cults uh, in Washington State? Is is that a place in your research where you found either there are, are cults that exist or there's potential for cult activity in that part of the country? 
Well, curiously, I, I did find in researching uh, the uh, both cults and a bit of Washington State and the neo-Nazi element, uh, and you know the uh, things like uh, Aryan Brotherhood, uh, not necessarily neo-Nazis, but white supremacists, primarily white white supremacists. Um, Washington State has um, more than any other state in the country. I wow. frankly would have thought it was California. Uh, or maybe um, some of the Midwest, upper Midwestern states, but no, that's it's Washington State. Um, they have an active Ku Klux Klan operation there, uh, at least one. Uh, they did when I was researching the book about a year and a half ago. But um, but there are other uh, survivalist groups and uh, uh, you know essentially right wing extremists who who live there. So uh, although I don't, I didn't actually find any particular. Um, number of cults, but certainly, I mean, I guess you could call those outfits cults as well, but not the traditional cult like the, uh, uh, you know, like the Branch Davidian or the, the sort of cult that I write about in the uh, in the book. Is there any chance uh, or, or did you get any opportunity to talk to anyone who may have been in one of these cults or, or uh, oh, part of them? Yeah. 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 In fact, I'll tell you a story. One of the things that inspired the um, the book was um, a memory I had from many years ago when I was uh, working in New York. I was an attorney there, and I met a. Uh, I was single, and uh, a woman uh, came into my office. A very attractive uh, woman, a very smart, creative uh, woman, uh, who was not was essentially uh, not a client of ours, but it was. Um, uh, she was kind of connected with one of the clients, and I'm, I'm not being obscure. It was kind of a complicated business situation. Uh, at the time. But anyway, so um, I, I we started chatting and uh, she was very nice and said, well, are you doing anything, uh, I guess, this weekend? And, uh, you know, a single man in New York City with an attractive woman does not miss an opportunity <laughs> like that. I'll tell you right now. And so I said, sure, I'd, I'd love to. Well, you know what she was doing? She was fishing for members to uh, join her cult. And I went to a um, I, I actually can't remember what it what it was. And if I did, I probably wouldn't mention it anyway because uh, it was a it was a very unnerving experience. Uh, it wasn't Scientology; it was, it was a local group. I think it was an East Coast kind of group, and probably 400 people, 400 500 people in a um, a ballroom in um, Manhattan, and we all had name tags on, and we all sat. Facing someone else, and this isn't just the the newbies, the you know the uh, potential recruits. Everybody sat like a, a foot or two feet away, I should say, two two or three feet away, chairs facing each other. Uh, we stared at each other for uh, until the the music came up, and this fellow walked on stage, and um, and there was kind of a voice from God, so to speak, telling us to do this, telling us to sit, telling us to wait, and then we were told to. Um, I greet the fellow who came out in a white suit, a very charismatic preacher sort, and um, was uh, spouting a, um, oh, it was a, some kind of, you know, stew of self-help and, um, uh, you know, encouragement to worship the, uh, the list he had made up of uh, uh, kind of a quasi-religious thing, that, like the, his Ten Commandments. And then people would applaud and cheer and stand up and clap in unison, uh, very much like what was in the book. And I could not get out of there fast enough, except they didn't really l let you leave. You had to sit through their uh, uh, their indoctrination session for the new people, and then they tried to sign you up right there. 
And I had, you know, I had no patience for anything like this. And I was also upset because the date didn't work out. And I don't <laughs> think I ever saw her again because I didn't didn't sign up. But I have to say it was a scary, scary moment. The um, there was nothing, you know, they weren't chanting evil things, but it, it was a um, it was a situation where it, it was a, a collective, like a creature. That's what came to my mind. It was like we were cells in in a like, I don't know some big you know, creatures slouching toward Bethlehem, if I can mention William Butler Yeats. I had that impression that it's a, uh, these weren't individuals with minds of their own. They were just, they were, uh, you know, taken over by the uh, the puppet master. And uh, so I thought, well, someday I'm going to write about that. And uh, then I did te- talk to some, uh, some people, actually um, in-law type relatives who had been in uh, Scientology and uh, had a, a very unpleasant experience. Uh, one was able to leave. It's quite difficult to do that. And the other was, um, uh, I won't even give the gender, but this person was afraid for his or her, uh, if not life, of being, um, uh, I, I guess, they put pressure on you in, in various social ways, being followed, uh, being uh, verbally abused. And that went on for some, some time. And she was going to, whoops, just gave it away. He or she, I'll add quickly, <laughs> was going to, uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd make a very bad secret agent, was going to write about it. And that's how it came up, asking me some advice about publishing. And then uh, she decided, uh, no, no, I just wasn't going to go there. Wow, that is harrowing to say the least. Uh, I, I think I know the answer to this question. I'm going to pitch you this softball anyways. Does, does the goodbye man uh, cut the mint toothpaste test for you? <laughs> that's uh well i guess your your uh you know your listeners are probably scratching their head right now uh and, and by that uh, l- let me explain what please uh, what yes I, mean. I have a a very uh i have very strong ideas about uh writing uh i was going to say commercial fiction but frankly i think some of my ideas ap- apply to all fiction and uh, i'll tell you the the scenario how that came up uh kind of a funny story i tell in my writing seminars it's this. Uh, let's pretend I'm a product designer for um, Procter and Gamble, and I go to my boss and I say, um, you know, Joe, I, I I had dinner with my wife last night. And we had something called pate. Have you ever heard of pate? And he said, Yeah, yeah, it's like expensive liverwurst. I say, Yeah, yeah, it was great. We just loved it. And I got this idea, uh, and it's going to put us on the map. It's a new product that Procter and Gamble is going to make, and it's liver flavored toothpaste. And my my boss looks at me. And he says, well, is it for dogs and cats? Because <laughs> uh, that's not a bad idea. I mean, you know, pets need good dental hygiene, too, uh, of course. And I say, no, no, it's for people. And he said uh, this, well, you're fired. Why? Because people don't want liver-flavored toothpaste. What they want is mint-flavored toothpaste. And I apply that theory to my books. When I sit down with a, um, an idea, and I, we may want to talk about craft a bit, too. I do a lot of outlining. For sure. We'll talk about that later. But, but uh, I, I look at an idea and I say, is this liver-flavored toothpaste or is it mint? And by that, I mean, I may be so excited about this idea. Uh, let's say I wake up in the middle of the night and I, I have this, this image for a story about uh, dinosaur, like smart dinosaurs, dinosaurs with human cognition who live on the planet Xantar and they see a um, Western, like a, like Shane, Alan Ladd Jr. or a John Wayne movie. They captured on their, 
you know, their, their devices in, uh, you know, a planet Xantar. And they uh, say, wow, this is going to be really cool. So they, they kind of recreate uh, the, uh, some of the movies and they, they develop guns and so forth. And, I, you know, so it's got Jurassic Park in it. It's got John Wayne in it. It's got uh, Forbidden Planet in it. All, all of those, all of whom I, you know, people in the, the movies I just loved. And um, then I think, you know what? It's liver. This is not for the readers. Readers are going to take a look at this and say, what the hell is he doing? It's, it's, it's just bullshit. And so um, I put it aside. And then I say, so what are people really going to want? Well, they want tightly constructed, uh, twisty uh, crime stories. It doesn't have to be crime, crime in my case, but you know, genre fiction, or even if you want to say literary fiction, that moves along, that doesn't digress, that is something written for them so that at the end of the book, they, they have a smile on the face or if it has a, and this is, I don't do it, but it's completely legitimate, completely valid. If it has an ending where the hero does die um, for reasons that are organic to the book, uh, to the story, that's, that's fine. So they cry at the end of the book, but they're emotionally engaged. And I want people to, to laugh at the big surprise and gasp. Uh, you know, and have their palms sweat up until that moment when I kind of pull off the big twist, uh, or at least you know try to try to pull it off. Readers are really smart; they they can figure you out sometimes, but they still have they still enjoy the process of outthinking you. So um, that is that is mint flavored toothpaste, a mint flavored book. When we write for the reader, and I have I, when I teach my courses, uh, people say to me, uh, uh, "Isn't that selling out?" And I say, no, it's, it's selling books. And that's what you should be uh, doing. Now, if you want to write something bizarre, well, please do, you know, and maybe there'll be a publisher who will publish it. And you might have a, a, a micro audience. Uh, there could be a group of people out there who want dinosaurs dressed up like John Wayne walking through, uh, you know, uh, recreated Western sets. Uh, they might absolutely love that. And for those eight people there you go. You've written a, a brilliant book for them, but just understand that it's going to be for eight people. And it, it's not our job uh, to, to make a lot of money. Uh, I mean, I'm lucky I can support myself uh, writing, which is just the most wonderful thing in the world. Nowadays, it's getting harder and harder to do. The advances are smaller and readership is, is down. But it, so it's not about making more money by pandering to the audience. It's about um, giving as many people as possible the best experience they can. And I think it's very important in the written world because a, a book or, a, or a, whether it's a book or a, a written book that you read or an audio book, I, I, I enjoy both. But anyway, a, a written uh, story is to me the most emotionally engaging form of creativity. And by that, I mean um, the, the reader has to participate with the author. You watch TV, and we love it. I binge on all sorts of things. I'm watching Get Shorty again, the epic, uh, epics or epic. I can't remember the uh, the uh, network that made it, uh, but it, it's it's just brilliant. And uh, you know, it's a binging thing. You just can't. It's like potato chips. You just can't stop. But when that's over, when Breaking Bad is over, or um, The Walking Dead is over, you know, you, it doesn't really stay with you in the way a book does because the um, the creators of that visual product have given us everything. 
It's got the music they, they decide. And it all comes together. You know, Breaking Bad was, I think, one of the best things I've ever seen on, on, on TV. It all comes together. The acting works. Um, the, uh, the sets work. The writing works. It's great. But we didn't really participate. We were passive. In, the, in a book, we create what the characters really look like. Maybe he's, you know, John Jones has dark hair. Okay, fine. Suddenly, I, I picture uh, a person I know who's kind of built like him. And that becomes John Jones. And the, um, uh, the combination of the, our participation in the story with well-crafted prose that just still sends a shiver down, down my back, I, I just absolutely love and think it is a, a very noble thing. And we authors have a responsibility to make sure that the, um, the product we put out there pleases people. I got into a, uh, a, a jovial argument with a great writer, Joe Lansdale, who you probably have heard of, yes. uh, writes, in, writes crime and, and kind of science fiction. He writes everything. He's written in hundreds of books and, and short stories. And so I, I, we were on the panel, and I, um, I, I said pretty much that. And uh, so the, the question went to some other uh, panelists and came to Joe, and he said, no, nah, I don't care about readers. That was, <laughs> that was his answer. He said, I just write whatever I want. And, uh, and he certainly has an audience. So, you know, you can't can't argue with that. But I think on on the whole, uh, by writing a book that pleases readers, uh, you 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 know, you're going to you're going to move them in a way that they might not otherwise be uh, be engaged in. They might finish a book and say, well, this is interesting, you know, but we don't want interesting books. We want compelling books that grab you by the throat and the heart and uh, and with the prose you know the if you can craft good prose um by the by the brain you know that's a very uh, yeah it's kind of a uh, uh you know a, a puzzle to be able to work out some of the the writing itself and suddenly you figure out oh wow that is such a beautiful figure of speech i just love that so when it all comes together it's breathtaking uh silence of the lambs for instance thomas harris's i think it was his third book um, uh, the movie, movie was, was good, of course, but the book, the prose is spectacular. And the, the story, of course, is, is good, uh, not for the squeamish, of course, but a serial killer book. But nonetheless, his prose is just just brilliant. And I look at, uh, you know, in other genres, Harry Potter, too. That book was written for readers. Uh, those books, I should say, the series was written for readers. Um, and uh, I, I just think that's a, uh, you know, a good standard to hold up. It certainly is, and your thirteen rules for for writing fiction or commercial fiction are fantastic, and I, I've studied them, and, and I'm really curious to know what it looks like for you once you've done your research. And I know you're a heavy plotter, and you, you have extensive outlines, and you and you hit the draft, you're ready to go. Uh, what does that look like? Do you have a certain time of the day, a certain place you like to do it, a certain method? What's your drafting process look like? Sure. Well, if you can picture a medieval uh, torture rack, <laughs> that's pretty much it. I love doing the outlines. In fact, I'm doing uh, I'm, I'm writing two books right now at the same time. Uh, and uh, one is a Lincoln Rhyme book and one is a Colton Shaw book. And um, because, frankly, I'm home, I'm, I'm, I'm self I'm not sick, but I'm self quarantining just to stay away from, you know, people who are. And so what do I do? I, I get up at six in the morning and I work until you know, like 11 o'clock at night. I take breaks, of course. But I'm doing the outlining now, and it is just exhilarating. And so I got uh, one of the uh, outlines is is just about finished, and that means 
uh-oh, I got to start to write the prose. <laughs> and that's, for me, that's agony. Now, that's about, you know, two months, two or three months of agony. Uh, I know where the story's going to go. There's no writer's block involved. I know where the story's going to go because I have the outline, about a 110-page outline in front of me. I've already wrestled through those writer's block moments where I say, now, what does he do? What happens now? And, uh, okay, I don't have any clue, so I'm going to jump ahead and do it in the outline. You know, you can do that. You can move around a lot. That's like a, you know, that's like a brain game. That is a puzzle. I enjoy doing that very much. Uh, but when that's done, now I have to craft the prose. And, uh, you know, when people have, students have asked me often, but, you know, don't you, if you do the outline, doesn't it become mechanical? Where's the creativity? Well, first of all, structuring a story is creative in itself. That's completely valid uh, creative process. But then the outline may have a, 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 I don't use numbers, I use bullet points. So I may come to, you know, the bullet point number 40, whatever it is. And the outline says only Coulter Shaw discovers someone who might be a witness uh, and that person mistakenly tries to shoot him. That's all it says. So now I have to figure out um, where Coulter Shaw is. I know who the, this person is because that's all, that's all plotted out. I know what he or she looks like, but I still have to have that action scene. I have to write that. Then I have to have some you know, emotional conversation between them. Uh, maybe it's mistaken identity. Uh, maybe uh, she actually believes is Colter Shaw, but thinks he is maybe working for the bad guy. And that's uh, both creative and exasperating. And it, um, uh, you know, I'll do a lot of false starts. I know what the scene is going to say, but I'm not quite sure how it's going to be said for the most, again, uh, emotional uh, impact. Yes. Yes, fantastic. Uh, is that why you consider yourself a plot-driven writer, because of the outlining? Yeah, yeah. I, I think these, uh, you know, Stephen King doesn't plot, um, and he, uh, oh, uh, uh, Michael Connelly doesn't plot, uh, Lee Child doesn't plot. I don't think Harlan Coben plots. You know, and those guys, if they're lucky, someday they'll be successful. <laughs> but, so, I, I'm not saying my way is, is the right way for everybody, but for, for, for a, a general writer, the, I, I can't say average in the sense of talent. What I'm saying is that the typical writer, um, you know, to sit down with a, just a blank uh, screen or pad of paper, however you work, um, it's a real slog to write a tight, tightly uh, plotted book with those reversals and those twists and turns. And, not have to go back and rewrite so much when you come to th two thirds of the way through and realize, you know what I should have done? I have to go back to something, uh, you know, 50, 60, hundred pages ago and rewrite that. Well, that's just, for me, that's too much work. If I had to do that, I probably wouldn't, wouldn't write. What, what I found is, you know, I've done it both ways and I learned my lesson. You outline first. And when you do that, You'll see, well, this may not be a book, you know, this may be liver flavored toothpaste. So you, when you're outlying, you can, you save yourself a lot of time. You don't have to, and agony, you don't have to throw out a whole manuscript, but you, um, you know, you realize this just isn't going to happen um, the way I, I want it to. So you start over again, or you, you come to that point and you say, oh, what am I going to do? I, I can't figure it out. I'll let it, let, let it sit for a little while. Ah, there we go. 
I'll, I'll jump ahead for just like five chapters. I said, say, let's kill somebody. Put a body in in chapter, you know, it'll be chapter 35. Good. Now I work backwards. And, oh, okay, that's good. So I stare at my post-it notes for usually for a couple months. And uh, then uh, finally the outline goes to a uh, goes to a computer. But, uh, you know, you, you just really need to plan this, plan it all out ahead of time and, and save yourself a, a lot of agony. Yeah, I think that's wise. Uh, as we kind of pull our conversation to a close, I have uh, one question for you I'd like to ask. And given these are some pretty crazy times and you've, you've been around for a while in this industry and have seen a lot, uh, what's, what's the future look like for publishing? Where are we headed? Yeah, I'm optimistic about it. I, um, I, I myself am kind of taking on the streaming uh, services and by that I mean I, I'm not I, I did have that NBC TV show and I, I had nothing to do with that so I didn't say I had it on uh, when I say I'm taking on the, the streaming uh, services what I mean is I am adapting my my books to a, a slightly different style I'm writing shorter books I'm writing uh, books with more dialogue less internal uh, introspection I'm, I'm really trying to write the way a TV show is uh is presented you know very again very fast paced uh easy to digest and understand i i I, my my prior books i think tended to be too complicated Uh, for instance the lincoln rhyme books uh had those lengthy evidence charts uh which were you know helpful And, and people could if they if they wanted to they could figure out who the killer was by analyzing those charts and some people did but but not many of them and i found they were digressive and i listened to what readers tell me and they 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 said well you know i felt guilty skimming over them i thought well i can't have that so i don't do those anymore i um i I don't i I, you know literary writers are some of my gods i just love people like saul bellow and um you know joyce carol oates um some of the classic uh writers from the uh 19th and uh, early 20th centuries, uh, John Dos Passos, um, the natural, uh, natural writers and uh, naturalist movement writers. And so I, I think I tended to try to be a little more literary than I should have been and kind of egotistically put in bigger words than I, I should have. I wasn't trying to show off. I was trying to capture a certain tone, but I think that didn't, didn't work. So none of that now. I mean, I don't want anybody, and I mean even a younger reader, to have to go to a dictionary to look up a word that's in one of my books. So anyway, I'm trying to um, to write a book that I think will be competitive with the um, you know the world of streaming TV and, and video games and, and network TV too. You know, cable and network everything. We sit down in front of the box and watch. So that's what I, I'm trying to do to take that into account. But um, you know, I've always felt that. If you well, because reading is the most emotionally engaging experience that, that one can have in the creative field, in, in entertainment, um, that people like books. And when I'm on an airplane, I always walk to the the restroom in 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 the back or whatever gives me the longest way to walk and watch what people are doing. And there are a lot of people playing Candy Crush. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is, but I know it's a, a, a very popular game now. It's like little bits of things that go around on the screen. I have no idea. But anyway, a lot of people play that. They play a solitaire. But um, and then there are you know, people working, you know, editing their you know, legal documents or whatever. But a lot of people are reading mostly it's a lot of books, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, dead, dead tree books, but a lot of um, 
a lot of eBooks too. And um, I'm not discouraged by the, um, uh, by the, I don't believe that reading is dying. I'm not discouraged by the, the rise of other forms of entertainment. I think to be realistic, if you have um, any um, among your um, listenership, and I'm sure you do, you have writers and potential writers, uh, it is harder now. Uh, those big books are much fewer and uh, far between. That's the, um, you know, the big advance, big blockbuster books. Um, I mean, I would tell aspiring writers out there i would i would aim for a series series are easier to sell i would um uh i don't think there's anything creatively wrong with it but i would try to get published with a, a traditional publisher uh indie publishing and i, I by indie i mean uh, like self-publishing or hybrid publishing is um you know it's completely nothing wrong with it at all but you are if you write a good book there'll be a there'll be a market for it and my uh my analogy for that is uh, a scene from uh, Moby Dick, and uh, in uh, in the book, the uh, the good Christian brothers own the Pequod. They're the uh, they own the whaling company, and they um, allow only good Christian uh, sailors on on board. And then uh, Queequeg, who is a um, I think uh, Fiji Island. I, I think he's anyway. He's a, a tattooed. Um, tribal uh, person, native to whatever uh, island he was from, comes up and wants to sign on the uh, on the boat, and uh, they say, "Well, no, you can't. You're you're not, you're not Christian." And so he he points in the book. He points to a little speck of tar floating in the uh, floating in the water, and he uh, rears back with a harpoon and throws it, and it goes right into the middle of that tiny little one or two inch bit of tar. And the brothers look at each other and they say, "Well, you know what? Maybe we can make an exception." <laughs> and uh, the, 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 my point is that if you're good, if you write a good book, if you write a mint flavored book, there will there will be a publisher for you and the publisher will promote that book and there'll be a, a readership for you. Um, you, you. You may have to adjust your goals a little bit. Um, it took me uh, after I started writing about six years to quit my day job and write full time. And, uh, it, it, you know, your book could be a huge, huge hit, you know, gone girl, something like, something like that. Um, a girl on the train, those, you know, huge hits. And, uh, I think it wasn't Gillian Flynn's first, uh, I, I don't, I actually don't call, but recall, but it could be, uh, you know, you have to pay your dues for a little bit and then, you know, hit it big and then retire, or you can do what I've done. You know, I've never had a, a really huge mega hit, but I, you know, I have enough books out and I've been doing it for a long time. So I, I could you know, support myself writing, which is again, just a wonderful sort of thing. And so um, I'm not, uh, I'm not gloomy about it at all. All right, Jeff Deaver. So I always put it on you when we come out of the break uh, to, to start. <laughs> so I figured I would start today and just say, uh, what a gracious guy. And, 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 you know, we, we've been interviewing a lot of people and talked to a lot of different people who've been in the industry for a long time. And I think you, you mentioned in the, in the intro, like he's such a great teacher and, and it just comes through. Uh, I'm sure our listeners heard it, but I, I could have listened to him for hours. Um, and, and he, he, you can tell he genuinely cares about what he's saying and what he wants to share with people. Yeah. And you know, the, the one thing that got me actually was, you know, he, he gets a date in New York 
and ends up at a cult meeting. <laughs> you know, like only Jeffrey Deaver. That's the kind of guy that that's going to happen to. I can see him getting all excited for his date and primping up and, you know, getting out there and then, you know, maybe 10 minutes into it going, holy crap, am I sitting in the middle? Oh, it is, isn't it? <laughs> um, but yeah, he's he, he will talk your ear off when it comes to the business side of things. And, and he's very knowledgeable. Um, and one of the things that he pointed out, um, which I think a lot of authors don't necessarily pick up on, you know, not every big name author, and he is a big name author out there. I mean, he's, he's on the New York Times bestseller list, I think, with every book now. Um, he hasn't had a huge blockbuster, you know, not not really, not not like a Gone Girl type 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 book. Um, but it's it's kind of like the the turtle slow and steady wins the race kind of thing. You know, he's got so many books out there. Um, you know, that, that he does well, he's, he's making a living from it. And honestly, I think, you know, Koontz was the same way. I mean, I, I still can't get that magic number out of him because he wrote under so many pseudonyms <laughs> before he actually had that first you know, blockbuster, but I think he had like 15 or 20 books out there before he really started selling. Um, you know, and you just, you get to the point where you just become one of those names that, you know, is thrown in front of the reader so many times. They're like, oh yeah, that guy. And then they just start picking up the books and, you know, and then you've got that back catalog and they like the first books and they pick up the second one and it just kind of goes from there. I think in a lot of ways that's better, you know, because if you think of like a Gillian Flynn, you know, she was working for, um, I think it was Entertainment Weekly, um, you know, when she wrote Gone Girl, but that was her third book. You know, the first two were out, you know, they, they did okay, uh, but they, they didn't light anything up. Um, and then Gone Girl comes out and is this huge, you know, ridiculously large hit. And, and now she's sitting at home, you know, and I don't know her. I'm just hypothetically guessing here. Yeah. But, you know, she's probably sitting in front of her Mac going, what the hell do I write next? And like every sentence probably just doesn't live up to whatever she feels she has to do next. Um, and that's that's a tough position to be in, I think. I, I think that slow and steady, you know, just turn out good quality books. I, I really think that's the way to go because, you know, not only is, is somebody like that second guessing themselves, but the readers are too. You know, you have that giant blockbuster book out there and then every book that you put out forever and ever after that is going to be measured against that one particular book. And, and I don't know that I want to be that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I also thought um, tying into that, his whole, whole idea, his 13 rules for writing commercial fiction are excellent if people haven't heard those yet. But the, the mint flavored toothpaste, <laughs> yeah. it's, you know, it's one of those things where uh, I'm sure you run into this too. People think they had this really unique story and it's like, yeah, you can write that, but how many people are really going to be interested in reading it? Yeah. And, you know, that's one of those other things. Like he had mentioned Joe Lansdale and I've, I've talked to Lansdale before and he really is like that. You know, he just kind of writes what he wants to read. Um, you know, I know personally, that's kind of what I do. Like I, I write books that I would have liked to find on, you know, would have liked to find on the shelves at some point. Um, the story's not out there. So I, I go ahead and write it. Um, other people write for other people. Um, you know, so somebody like Jeffrey Deaver, like he knows, you know, and, and Kuntz is, I think he coined the phrase literary popcorn. Um, you know, these guys are writing for a mass market. You know, they, they want to hit as many people as possible. Um, and, and you could write an Amish steampunk novel if you wanted to, um, you know, the 12 people might buy it. Um, or you could write something that may not necessarily be what you want to read, but is going to have the biggest possible appeal. Um, you know, and, and you got to weigh those things, I think, as a writer. And, and a lot of that comes across, too, in the writing. I mean, if you're writing something that you don't necessarily believe in, it, it's probably going to feel that way to the reader and, yeah. and to you. You know, it becomes a, a slogging mess of work uh, and not something that you're enjoying. And it may not be fun to read. Um, so who knows? Yeah. Yeah. What, what a fantastic guy, though. Great interview. Learned so much from it. And, uh, and you know, hopefully everyone else learned a lot, too. Like I said, he just he came across to me as, as a very natural teacher, very outgoing and genuine in wanting to help other writers. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. Excellent. All right. So let's do a little tease. Who do we have up for next week? Next week we have James Rollins. Um, and another guy that, you know, I, I haven't heard the interview yet, obviously, but you know, I've seen him speak a number of times, mainly at thriller fest. Um, and another one of those guys that just, you know, he knows the craft inside and out, um, and, and loves to sit down with people and, and help them. Um, he's also a light licensed veterinarian, uh, still, <laughs> you know, I guess I like, he, he's selling a pretty decent number of books, but I guess he likes to have that, that fallback career out there. Um, just in case. Kind of yeah. Just in case. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that though. Yeah. That should be fun. Excellent. Okay, well, uh, to our listeners, we appreciate your support. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until next time, have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.